What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to World History Class with Mr. Lutz, where today we will take one last look at the time period of 1450 to 1750 in what I call cultural expansion and realignment. So around 1450, the Catholic Church had been the supreme authority on all things political, cultural, and social in Western Europe, while Orthodox Christianity dominated in Eastern Europe. Europeans had held to the belief that the Earth was motionless and at the center of the universe and that all planetary bodies orbited around it. There were different sects of Islam, but the Sunni sect had generally dominated political affairs over the Shia for the first 800 or so years of Islamic society. Islam and Hinduism had existed side by side in South Asia for several centuries, embodying what appeared to be largely different belief systems and ways of perceiving the world. But by 1750, an entirely new sect of Christianity called Protestantism had emerged and was now competing with Roman Catholicism for influence across Europe. Meanwhile, the emerging scientific revolution was calling previously held beliefs about the workings of the natural world into question. The Roman Catholic states of Portugal and Spain made a push to globalize their faith, spreading it throughout their empires and trade posts in the Americas, Africa, and Asia. Tensions between Sunni and Shia had flared between the Safavid and Ottoman empires, and a new religion formed in India arguing that all Hindus and Muslims were in fact children of God. So, how did that happen? So we begin our story today in a small community in the Holy Roman Empire named Wittenberg. There, on October 31st, 1517, a German priest named Martin Luther nailed a document he'd written called the 95 Theses onto the front door of the town's cathedral. Though this sounds potentially ordinary, the effects of this action would forever change Christianity and launch a series of events that damaged the authority of the Catholic Church in Europe, led to the deaths of millions across the continent, and gave new meaning to the lives of individuals. This was because Luther's 95 Theses contained criticisms he had for the Roman Catholic Church and its leadership, and a lot of his frustration was focused on Catholic clergy caring more about their wealth than their followers, which led to corruption within the church, and especially manifested itself with the selling of indulgences, a practice where documents said to lessen the time one would spend in the afterlife prior to entering heaven were being sold to faithful believers. The unifying belief of Luther that brought all these criticisms together was how he thought a person earned God's forgiveness. The Catholic Church had taught that both faith in God and works, like sacraments and other actions, like buying indulgences, doing these things through the church were necessary to be saved by God. However, Luther was obsessively devoted to studying the Bible, and through his studies, he came to the conclusion that it was only through one's faith that God's forgiveness could be granted. To him, this meant one did not need to go through the church to access God, and therefore the institutional power of the Catholic Church and its leadership wasn't necessary. Massively supported by Europe's first use of the printing press, This argument would set off a chain reaction of other thinkers and criticisms of the Catholic Church, resulting in the development of different Protestant faiths across Western Europe. But these issues at the Catholic Church weren't just about religious beliefs. 
because the church had so much influence in society, it was about political authority as well. So European states now struggled both internally and with neighbors over what religion they practiced. Most destructively, these political and religious struggles led to the Thirty Years' War. So this war was essentially based on the rights of states within the Holy Roman Empire to choose what religion people were to practice. It dragged many other European states in and resulted in the deaths of perhaps 4 to 12 million people, which would make it the deadliest war in Europe until World War I. But ultimately, the Peace of Westphalia would end the conflict by giving state leaders the right to choose the religion of their people. Elsewhere in Europe, Spain, now flush with all that silver from their mines in the New World, unsuccessfully fought to get rid of Protestantism in the Netherlands and England, helping to drain their wealth. Western Europe was no longer religiously defined strictly by Roman Catholicism. But the Catholic Church would attempt to right their wrongs in what became known as the Counter-Reformation. They'd reaffirm many of their beliefs, but they did do away with the selling of indulgences. They invested in educating their clergy, and they took advantage of European access to foreign lands by working to spread their beliefs on a global scale through the work of Jesuit priests and other religious orders. So the Protestant Reformation had led to individuals questioning the authority of the Catholic Church on spiritual matters, but the Church had also been explaining the natural world in a way that helped legitimize its power. Now, as a result of recent and more historical trends, these explanations are also going to get called into question in an era that has been broadly defined as the scientific revolution. It'd be too simple to say the Protestant Reformation led to the scientific revolution, though there is a relationship between the two. Prior to the Reformation, natural philosophy, as science was once described, had begun to formalize in Western Europe during the late Middle Ages. This began as cultural transfers, especially from the Islamic world, brought new understandings about medicine, astronomy, and even older preserved ideas from the classical Greek and Roman past. European universities had been independent of religious or political authorities and could thus explore ideas without being controlled by the Pope or any monarchs throughout Europe. Also, increased merchant activity by Europeans across the oceans of the world brought Europeans into contact with new goods, new people, and ideas from all over the world. So these expanded contacts and increased freedom to explore ideas and theories meant human beings stood on the edge of growing way more aware of the natural world's processes. Now, the fundamental understanding that defined the scientific revolution had originally related to the Earth's positioning within the universe. It was long believed the Earth was located in the center of the universe and did not move. Planets, stars, and the moon, according to the geocentric theory, all rotated around the Earth. This theory was first developed in the Greco-Roman world and was supported by the Catholic Church based upon literal interpretations of the Bible. The heliocentric or sun-centered model was first argued by astronomer Nicholas Copernicus in 1543 and was supported by the observations of Galileo with his improved telescope in the early 17th century. These developments were furthered by Isaac Newton's discovery of the universal law of gravitation and driven home by René Descartes' argument that human understanding only came from our ability to reason rather than our faith in what institutional authorities have told us. The foundation was set for humans to reevaluate their relationship with those institutions as well. 
What this meant is that a scientific method had been developed and formalized as a way for human beings to better understand the natural world. But what we'll learn about in the next episode is when other thinkers began to apply this same scientific and reason-based approach to human society. It was then argued that reason could be used as a means to improve the systems that allow human beings to cooperate and organize themselves. This would become known as the Age of Enlightenment, and its effects continue to have a profound impact to this day. Now, in more global affairs, European economic and religious interests work together to motivate and justify expansion into new land across the Indian, Atlantic, and Pacific Oceans. States such as Spain and Portugal went about exploring because, yes, they wanted to strengthen their economic ties, particularly with Asian markets, accidentally stumbling into the Americas along the way. We know this. However, both of these states had just driven Muslim control out of their respective lands. In fact, 1492 marks not only the year that Columbus first reached the Americas, it's also the year that marked the end of the Spanish Reconquista which was a centuries-long conflict that ultimately drove any Muslim control from Spain once and for all. It's within this context, and that of the threat from now the Christian Protestants, that help us understand why specifically Spain and Portugal desired to spread Catholic teachings and convert the people they encountered on their voyages. They believed their faith was engaged in a struggle for the souls of humankind against Islam and Protestantism expansion potentially allowed them to gain mass converts. Religious missionaries led the way in these efforts for primarily the Spanish and the Portuguese, and to a lesser extent the French. Some Europeans, such as the English Puritans of North America, weren't intent on converting others to their faith, instead just desiring an opportunity to develop a religious community of their own design that wouldn't be interfered upon by state authorities. Ultimately, it's far more common, though, for Europeans to attempt to convert those that they interacted with. The conquest of large states like the Incas and the Aztecs certainly convinced the Spanish of the supposed superiority of their god over that of the indigenous Americans. Paired with the spreading of epidemic diseases, it might have also convinced the indigenous peoples, too. In parts of the world that Europeans did not conquer, though, like India, China, or Japan, they were much less successful in their attempts to convert people. But in the Americas, Catholic missionaries were able to work off the back of European conquest and convert people who were sometimes willing to adopt their teachings, and when they weren't, violence could be used as a tool to force conversion. Indigenous religious structures in the Americas were often destroyed, and people were physically and legally punished if found practicing their native religious traditions. Some people in the Americas did actively resist conversion, but many others found a way to combine their traditional beliefs with Christianity in a process of syncretism. The Virgin of Guadalupe is a popular example where an American version of the Christian Virgin Mary became a figure of worship who was believed to protect indigenous people and those who were of mixed European and American ancestry. Leaders within local churches also came from the indigenous community, and they made efforts to maintain their traditional practices within the new Christian faith. Enslaved Africans in the Americas combined their native practices with Christianity too, as evidenced by the practice of Vodou in Haiti and Santeria in Cuba. Now, over in the Islamic world, a divide between Sunnis and Shias had existed since the death of Muhammad when a debate followed on who should succeed him as the leader of the faith. Sunnis had argued it should be one who's supremely qualified for the task, while Shias thought the leader should be from the bloodline of Muhammad. 
Religious conflict followed, but it was especially heightened when two empires, the Ottoman and Safavid, clashed in the 16th century. The Safavids practiced the Shia faith and used force to impose it on the Sunnis of their region. Some had adopted a fanatic belief in their cause, arguing their first leader, Shah Ismail, was a blood descendant of Muhammad and the one who would return his lineage to leadership of the Islamic faith. As the Safavid Empire grew, so did their forceful conversions of the Sunni population in the region, drawing anger from their neighbors, the Sunni Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans turned and persecuted Shias living in their empire. This conflict came to a head in an Ottoman victory against the Safavids in the Battle of Chalderan in 1514. The Safavids continued on for centuries after this battle, but no longer took as aggressive a stance against the Sunnis again. Meanwhile, in South Asia, we've already talked in previous episodes about the efforts of Emperor Akbar in the Mughal Empire to bridge the gap between Hindus and Muslims within his state. However, there was more being done in this region to help draw these cultures together. The Mughal court had hired Sufis in an attempt to have them incorporate Hindu yoga practices into Islam. The mystical movement in Hinduism, known as Bhakti, pushed back against the rigid social structures of their faith and also sought a divine connection to their god, just as the Sufis of Islam did. The gap between Islam and Hinduism did not seem as large with efforts such as these. Also, by the end of the 15th century, a new faith called Sikhism had developed where Islam and Hinduism converged in northwestern India. Sikhism would reflect this geography because it blended the beliefs of the two faiths together. Calling for universal brotherhood, the founder of Sikhism, Guru Nanak, argued against the caste system, the seclusion of women, and the practice of untouchability. Many people in the region of Punjab, both Muslim and Hindu, converted to this new faith. They formed their own community defined by their own book, holy sites, and religious practices. However, they would grow to earn hostility both from Hindu communities and the Muslim Mughal Empire, leading to their faith having to develop a military edge in order to defend itself from potential threats. So remember, by 1750, an entirely new sect of Christianity, Protestantism, had emerged and was now competing with Roman Catholicism for influence in European state affairs. Meanwhile, the emerging scientific revolution was calling preconceived beliefs about the workings of the natural world into question. The Roman Catholic states of Portugal and Spain had made a push to globalize their faith, spreading it throughout their empires and trade posts in the Americas, Africa, and Asia. Tensions between Shia and Sunni had flared intensely during the era, and a new religion was forming in India that argued all Hindus and Muslims were all children of God. So we're all finished with our basic narrative structure of the years between 1450 and 1750. Our next episode will shake the political foundations we've established as new political ideas and revolutions will transform states, especially in the Americas and Europe. If you found this helpful and want to express your thanks, please check out the PayPal link in the episode description. Until next time, take care, everyone. Thank you.